Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Matava, and today I'm joined by the students who run York Student Think Tank. And uh, their president, Pablo, is here. He's going to briefly introduce himself, and uh, we'll move down the line, and then we're going to talk about some of their, some of their papers they're working on and the, their objectives and just what this think tank is all about. Hello, everyone. My name is Pablo. I'm the chair of the York Student Think Tank, and I study PPE at the University of York. Lovely. May is the secretary, and she's going to introduce herself as well. Hi, I'm also studying PPE, and I'm in my second year. Um, yeah. Um, Say so, um, You got anything else? A fun fact, May. Um, we'll come back to you. Okay. Lars is the treasurer over here. He's also a fellow Dutchman, so we could be speaking Dutch right now, but then you guys wouldn't understand. Uh, and he's the, the treasurer of the uh, York Student Think Tank. Ik zou het wel leuk vinden om Nederlands te spreken. <laughs> But I'll go in I'll go in English. Yeah, I am the treasurer. My better. name is Lars. Um, I decided to join the think tank because I think it's important that we do some research so we can look and suggest good policy solutions. Absolutely. So what is a think tank for? Why why do you guys spend your time on this this thing, revamping this York think tank? And I'll give you that question, Pablo, the president over there. Well, the the reason why we decided to bring the the think tank back is because there's a gap in the university for students that want to go into policy writing there is a big opportunity for those that want to get involved politically either with the conservatives with labor with the liberal democrats however when it comes to writing policy there was no such society in the university and that's why we decided to bring the think tank back but you guys aren't a, aren't like a stepping stone to the 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 sort of bigger think tanks or writing policy for organizations, institutions, government. You guys write your own policy papers. You're working on them now. You're going to get them. You're going to send them to to places. Commission? Are you going to get a commission on it, or is it just for free? You're sending them out. Uh, these these policy papers that you guys are writing. What is the deal with them? Well, we in a way commissioned ourselves, given that we're coming back. We don't really have any kind of history, therefore we can't really get a commission. Fair. since we don't have any work to show. So we've commissioned ourselves a set of projects, and I mean, fundamentally, we are a group of students. You could say, quote-unquote, amateurs when it comes to think tanks. We're giving the students that want to get involved the opportunity to experience what it would be like to get involved in a think tank and write policy for themselves. So someone who's listening now could get involved in this think tank. Is that is that that is that what I'm hearing? Yes, of course. Oh, that's great. Okay, because I'm I'm actually thinking of 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 getting involved uh, because we 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 all met in V Bar quite accidentally. I think I heard the Dutch accent in Lars's voice, and then I uh, was it who was it, who did, it? Was it George who introduced me? I believe it was George. Yeah, because yes. I saw him and I had a seminar with George for political theory, and then I had met you before Lars because you were a speaker's officer with the Club of Pep, uh, and I took over that position. Uh, so we 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 met without sort of meeting and knowing each other. And then when, when uh, he introduced you, I heard the Dutch and the Dutch accent, and that kind of got us talking right away. And then it got us talking about the think tank. We had a meeting, and now we're here recording a podcast. So let's move on to the policy papers themselves. Sustainable living, that was, uh, that, that's, the po that's the topic of yours, Lars. Could you give us a brief sort of introduction to that, what you're trying to accomplish with this paper? Yes, yes, of course. The main 
argument behind this paper is there's a lot being done on sustainable living. It's a very big topic right now. But mostly when it's spoken about, people are concerned with what do countries do? What do big corporations do? And very few or very little attention is paid to the individual responsibility. So my research paper is looking at the individual responsibility, both the opportunities and limitations therein. So what can I do on a very, well, minute scale that makes a difference? And what are the actions that if everyone here in the UK, particularly, because that's where I'm focusing, carries out these actions, um, that they will make a difference? What are some of the specifics that you get into? Are there sort of directives or ways that you can maybe easily, not easily in your everyday life, reduce the the, the waste and the, the human footprint that each of us causes? Yes, yes. And that is exactly what we're trying to outline here. So there are, at least we have defined it into six categories. So we've got transport, we've got consumerism, we've got electricity or energy, we have got diet, we have got finance, and we've got communication. So these are the th six broad realms in which we can take action. In most instances, the easiest and most uh, powerful way to act is to simply reduce the amount that we're doing things. So eat less of um, things that we will throw away anyway, buy less clothes, um, travel less. So it's not stopping doing certain things, but doing less of what we are doing. Yeah, because our carbon footprint as sort of Western, uh, as, as students living in Western countries going to university, it has to be a lot bigger than your global average, you know? And there is a big debate right now for, and I, I just saw a headline that uh, in when I was sitting in a courtyard earlier, and I mean, you shouldn't just read headlines, I know. But uh, it was just on, on the TV as a BBC headline that uh, Antarctic uh, ice caps are melting at the at accelerated rates, even higher than any scientist at the at the at the UN believed that they that they would be melting. So this seems like a really urgent kind of a kind of a thing. So what with this paper, what are you trying to accomplish uh, for those who read it? Is it just reducing? the individual carbon footprint? Is it trying to create a larger conversation around carbon? And do you mention climate change? Is it is it about climate change or is it about just reducing a carbon footprint for, for, for the sake of it? Or do you really bring in climate change? It is about climate change. It's definitely about climate change. And like uh, I think you just touched on, we are the biggest polluters, rich Westerns, Westerners. So we do need to take responsibility. And that is what this is aiming at because I know so many people who talk to me and who say, well, I don't matter. I'm not I'm not causing the problems here. But I think partially we are causing the problems and I want to provide people with definite actions that they can take to make sure that they can reduce the footprint or their impact on the environment and their contribution to climate change. What are you doing, Lars? What are you doing to reduce your climate footprint let's, so, let's hear it let's hear it i'm putting you on the spot here but uh <laughs> but i think it needs to be done no 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 that's very good um uh, last year i had a car this year i've sold it i've decided to use public transport only from now on so i think that's a big step i used to eat meat all the time um, i now eat meat maybe twice a week 
I that's big. That that's something that veganism seems very or vegetarianism seems very attractive, and it's a great way to reduce. Uh, your carbon footprint, but it's just so easy to eat meat, and I I really like it so much. And everybody who has eaten meat, their pretty much every meal for their entire life, uh, it's hard to 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 kick that. But you you've been able to do it. Yeah, but it's not just yes, eating meat is a big step, and I haven't stopped completely. I'm going to be honest with you. I still eat meat now and again when I go out. You don't want to have that salad. You <laughs> kind of want some. Yeah, if you're paying extra money to have a nice meal, you want something that is nice. Um, and meat can be very tasty, which I don't have a problem with, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can take many more steps with with eating food, for example. I don't know if people have heard of Scoop, which is a student-run um, shop here at York. They sell food that has no packaging on it, so you bring your own containers, you fill them up, and then that's a good way to reduce, well, plastic waste. That does seem like a... A, a, a huge component to uh, a carbon footprint. Do you look into that a little bit more in the paper, the extent to which we use packaging? Because we, we really do it without thinking about it, throwing away a plastic bag, throwing away... I mean, even if you're not going to use plastic bags, you'll use sort of a tote bag to carry your groceries. Most of it's going to be in, encased in plastic just to keep it fresh and, and, and sealed. So do you, do you address that at all in the paper? Yeah, we do look at it. And we do recognize, because we also look at the limitations of the personal responsibility. So we do recognize that in a lot of instances, things come packaged. You don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. I might go to the supermarket and I want to buy apples without some sort of plastic wrapping around them. And I might simply not be able to. Can't just hold them in your arms. Yeah, well, if they're already packaged, am I mm-hmm. going to rip them out the plastic, leave the plastic <laughs> there? We're sort of defeating the point, isn't it? Absolutely. How about you guys, May and Pablo? Have you been uh, been a little bit taken by Lars's Lars's uh, argument there and his uh, his 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 uh, his position paper, or are you still uh, eating meat and uh, like like me, not really thinking as much as I should be about my carbon imprint and footprint? Well, I think definitely after. Um the beginning of Lars's paper I've taken into more account as a student but um, I do still eat quite a lot of meat. Um, It's hard not to. Yeah exactly but I do cycle actually I bought my bike um, the first time this this year so um, I'm trying to cut down that way too. What Dutch people love to hear we love a good love a good bike love cycling. We applaud it. Absolutely. (laughs) How about you Pablo? Well ever since Lars started his research paper I've become a lot more strict with recycling so before it was a bit, let's be honest, half-assed to put it somehow. Yes, you do sort of recycle, but not properly. So that's something I've become a lot stricter with when it comes to meat. <laughs> I'm afraid I haven't been particularly great there either. Though I like to think that I don't eat too much of it. Yeah, that is something that perhaps I could improve. And my, uh, my, my, I have a twin brother and he went vegan, like just straight vegan. Uh, from eating meat pretty much at every meal and he wanted to do it for two weeks and it just didn't work at all he had constant like stomach aches he just had just irritable a horrible experience i think he stopped after like a week and a half and uh so that seems like a more extreme version of of reducing a carbon footprint do you think that the extremes of sort of veganism 
traveling only by sort of cycling and public transport, are these going to be necessary in order to reduce climate change? Or can we all sort of be like Pablo or strive to sort of recycle better or try to bike more? Uh, do we need to like go to extreme measures at this point? If you'd asked me this question maybe 20 years ago, I would say the little adaptations would have been enough because the biggest progress is made on the easy steps. But because we have now reached a critical time, I think, um, almost a point of no return, it is becoming necessary if we want to maintain what we have. The world that we understand today, mm -hmm. we will have to take extreme measures. I honestly don't even think it is possible, even with the extremest possible measures, far from all just living in caves and having no modern luxuries, I believe that we probably cannot, cannot stop the world heating to a point where it will change the way it is. What do you think about nuclear energy? Do you bring that up at all in your uh, in your paper? I, I know that it's more centered around what an individual can do, but it seems like out of all the options that we have right now for energy, which is one of the things one of the one of the main headings that you 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 talked about at the beginning for uh, sustainability, one of the main or the, the the cleanest energy source that we have right now that we'd be able to sort of mass produce would be nuclear energy. What do you think about nuclear energy as a concept, and what do you think about sort of the 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 success that it is? Uh, it's the safest by by any metric. It's the it's the safest way to generate power, and I mean it's just the, the sort of dogma of of the disasters, Chernobyl, uh, Japan, uh, that is that has caused the sort of fear of nuclear power. But what what would you have to say about it after writing this paper? And it, I'd be interested to hear if it's if you talk about nuclear power at all in the paper. So the paper only touches it in the extent of how much harm does it provide to the environment and therefore should we choose it as a source? Yes, we should choose it as a source. We should choose nuclear and renewables, solar, wind as sources rather than coal, gas and other fossil fuel related sources. And then we calculate what impact it has if you take coal out completely and only power your um, electricity use through nuclear, for example. And then outside from the research paper, um, personally on nuclear, I think we should use it much more than we do. Because as you say, if we want to now power this whole world on renewable energy, it wouldn't happen. It'd be very difficult. Well, we'd need some massive ability to store power. We'd need to create probably huge lakes because that's the only way because batteries aren't big enough. So we'd need to pr uh, create a lot, a lot of hydro. And if you flood an area, um, then you're probably destroying it as well. So this is also environmentally damaging. Yeah, extreme, extreme measures here. Well, on that a little bit depressing note, I think we might, 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 have to, might have to move on to May's paper over here. She wrote about the humanitarian crisis and is writing about the humanitarian crisis in, in, uh, in China. Could you just give us a brief outline of what your paper is about? Who is it for? Why are you writing it? And, and what are the sort of highlights? Yeah, of course. Um, well, out of all the five topics that have been that are running right now in the society, mine is probably the most politically skewed. Um, so we always have to be quite cautious with that. Um, but basically, um, with China's um, rise in the in power and globe globally and e um, politically and econ economically, um, 
we're trying to see that the, the humanitarian kind of um, atrocities that some people might call them are um, that are unfolding in China are um, gaining more and more light in the public sphere um, in the West. So um, when you say when you say that specifically, what are you referencing with the uh, humanitarian issues? So my paper in particular um, is researching um, three um, topics. So firstly, the um, <coughs> workers' rights in China and um, how what the um, precautions that they have, the kind of um, legal rights that they have there. And also the Uyghurs um, in Xinjiang province and how they're being treated um, in the um, educational camps. Really, internment camps, it looks like. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what they want to call them. Um, but uh, so, how, so how the Chinese government is treating these this um, group of people and the, um, basic, basically this ethnic cleansing that's going on and trying yeah. to research that. Then also the final topic is um, one of the uh, ones that have been in the news quite lately is the um, situation in Hong Kong and mm -hmm. the um, the power struggle between um, you know being a, being a democracy or um, the two um, countries one system no two one system no two countries one system. Um, well, let's just try to balance that that Hong Kong used to be under British rule and the sort of legacy of that and the the influence of uh, China as, exactly. as a state in there. So and the legitimacy it, of it is as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and whether Hong Kong is has the right to um, be its separate country or whether or not the... I mean, if you power. got a third of the population out on the streets, how incredible is that? Exactly. Just a huge show of love of sort of democracy, freedom, these kind of mm. liberal ideals that we take for granted here. Very yeah, interesting. Have you have you found it difficult to research these topics with how open or not open the Chinese government might be to people researching these topics? Yeah, it's funny you say that. That was one of the main concerns at the very beginning of the starting this paper of how... Um, accessible all this information mm -hmm. is going to be but um we found out that there that there are um research paper the way the main way that we do the research about this is to look at other articles people have written mm -hmm. and one of the main objectives that I have is that is it's not necessarily to influence um the chinese government at all or the big um western powers to do anything but rather um the main objective of the paper is to broaden the um, public knowledge about what's going on, Absolutely. just to um, spread the word and just try and get people more aware of the of what's happening. So, so who, do you, because who do you want to read this paper? Well, anyone who's interested in the in like humanitarian kind of um, ordeals, um, and anyone who's interested in politics, really. Um, so that being students or anyone further out there, like in the society, has this tied in with PPE at all? Actually, I'm doing. I was doing Rising Powers, which is yeah. a second year module. Um, and I just selected my modules, and I was looking at Rising Rising Powers as well. It oh, kinda, it was, there are it was such there. a good. I loved it so much. Yeah, I recommend to anyone who's like listening, who's thinking about second year modules. But I was maybe last week, the last time I was in here recording, I I was just kicking myself because I had an idea about three days after the module sele module choice selections were completely closed about having several episodes where we have just students that did uh, or were module reps yeah, that's for the different second year modules to come in and just give like a uh, maybe five, ten minutes on each module of just 
a little bit of an interview discussion about the module, or you can just have like one of the one of the module coordinators, uh, the the lecturers, in to talk with with them. So it'd be a lot of work for me getting each of those individuals to come in to do like ten ten minutes max to then sew it together. But I feel like it would have been a really really good way to to show second years. Uh, what each of these modules are about, and yeah, so I think that's on the on the agenda for for next year, and maybe do that for the third year modules as well, because then I'll be selecting those modules, so it'll be interesting to hear. Exactly. But back to your back to your paper, is there anybody specifically that you want to 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 read your paper? Is it really just to broaden the conversation around the humanitarian crisis in China? Well, I guess politically active people, like political activists, maybe who, mm-hmm. if this really riles them up, that is always um, good because that will spread the word, but also like maybe help to change things. Although China's a dictatorship right now, and it's obviously um, with its growing economic and political power, it's just very difficult to influence it. That's what well, we especially found. the economic power. The yeah, the Western nations that love or say it love to love to love democracy and all the all the sort of freedoms we take for granted here aren't doing anything about the humanitarian the true yeah humanitarian crisis in china they're continuing to trade with china it's it's uh it seems like there isn't the cognitive dissidence there to say no maybe we need to find other suppliers for all of our all of our shit really just everything everything that we we get is not everything okay that's no overstatement but we trade so much with china i'm not sure about the uk but the us has a trade deficit with china i'm i'm uh, i'm pretty sure most western nations will as well just because of of how much they how much they produce and how economically necessary they are for for our interconnected economy yeah a lot of the policies that um have been um, what we found out with the effective ones have always been like there's always this tension between whether or not you, um, a country wants to um, favor its political interests, like the humanitarian interests or their economic interests, and they always seem mm-hmm. to be, you know, um, they don't, at, they wouldn't want to piss off one of their closest trading exactly. partners. Exactly, and one of the most. Do you address that in the paper? Yeah, particularly with the workers' workers' rights and um, the Uyghurs because um, of um, the Middle Eastern, because uh, the Uyghurs is a ethnic group that is uh, Muslim, but a lot, and a lot of the Muslim countries are um, like in the Middle East. They kind of turn a blind eye to it because of their economic interests with China, even though they're they're in China. They're ethnically cleansing that 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 their their religious um, people for their religious beliefs being Muslim. Absolutely. So, what would you have to say about all of that, Lars? I want to bring you and Pablo in as well to this conversation, so it's not just a little bit of a one-on-one here. As interesting as this is, what would you guys? have to say as sort of as part of the exec committee of the think tank and then also having sort of probably talked with may a lot about her paper what what are your opinions on what she's what she's working on the the paper and the issue itself at first it was a concern for us whether it would get some clash back from the university from yusu but actually, it's not been the paper that's caused us the most trouble. It's the paper that potentially criticizes university mental health services. Um, so, but May's paper has has made it very clear the extent of the issues that we face Make in sure China. Speaking right into the microphone. May's paper has made it very clear the extent that the issues in China are present right now. Um, I find it interesting. Maybe there could be a bit about how we 
in the West can react and what we can do to maybe force China to well, it's really be a bit more tough responsible. as individuals because when you see a product, uh, you uh, it's not that you associate it with your nation, but it's just it's just a product. It's not something that's Chinese, something that's Italian, something it's 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 uh, you could boycott sort of Chinese products, but then you'd be living a very interesting life, you know? You would probably wouldn't have a mobile phone, or you'd have to be really, really, really careful about the products you buy, constantly researching. Would you not say that it's really on, on governments for this one? Because as, back to what we were talking about with climate change, there's a lot that individuals can do, and we really need to take responsibility because it's sort of our planet. But with something like a humanitarian crisis, is there something that we as individuals can do um, as in, as individuals, no. As individuals within a collective, yes. Okay. So I think we do need to speak out and pressure other people around us to also pay attention to this. Would you agree there, Mayor? Yeah, for sure. I think that's the same with every single paper that we've... Um, every single paper that is being published um, at the end of this year, we all are trying to get the most kind of reaction from the public, trying to mobilise and um, activism and things like that. I mean, the the fundamental objective of this paper I think and of all of the papers I dare say is to raise awareness I mean the best thing we can do is let people know what's happening no you're not writing it for no reason exactly you're not um, just trying to buff up the CV <laughs> okay <laughs> interesting we can now it's move on to a bit a bit a little bit I mean why else would you would you come to uni why else would you sort of engage in the different things that university life has to offer if you can't put that on your CV right so, but moving on to your paper there, Pablo, higher education and the, the purpose of higher education. What's the purpose of higher education? We'll leave it open-ended there. <laughs> well, it actually ties a lot into what you just said, the fact that, you know, we come to university and everything we do, in a way, is just to put it on our CV. So in my time here at university, I've heard so many complaints about, oh, well, back in the day when people got a degree, then they would almost have a job guaranteed for them and that it is increasingly less the case and I asked myself the question of whether university the sole purpose of it is in fact to get us a job when you look back at the old days of university I guess people went in order to be cultured in a way they went almost for the sake of academic output they went because they loved literature because they loved philosophy it was almost a well-rounded education back in the day as opposed to just one subject so what I wanted to, well, what the paper is doing exactly is that it's looking at the Robbins Report of 1963. It's the government report that essentially created the university boom in the UK. It's determining the purpose that that sets out, and then we're analysing it in the current context. So what is the purpose that that, was that a paper? Yes, it was a paper that essentially found that university had four purposes. One purpose was to create academic output, Another one was to allow people to get a job. The third purpose was um, to create common standards of citizenship. And the fourth one... Nice, Lars. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a, a, a little ringtone there from, uh, <laughs> from Lars's phone. Very unprofessional, I must say. If anything, no, I'll, no, just, it's all good. I'll just do the four ones again. So the four purposes that this paper identifies for university is essentially vocational, so to get a career, to create common standards of citizenship, 
for the experience of university in a way, for the culture of it, quote unquote, and to create common standards of citizenship. Do you in, agree? Are those the four purposes or do they, they, those together create the purpose of university, why we come here, or is there more to it? I think it's a pretty good way to sum it up. It's so difficult to actually explain why we're here. I think there are so many reasons for it. Yeah, it gets very philosophical very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that in identifying these four, it pins it quite well. And what we're doing is almost reconsidering which ones are the most important now. Well, it seems like it's very focused on getting a job. That's the, that's the chief reason yes. that people will go to university and pay to come to university because it's you're investing in yourself. You're investing in your your abilities in the future that this will open up so many or a, a number of doors that wouldn't be open to you with just a high school diploma or A-levels or GCSE. Yes, I mean, obviously one of the main reasons is to be able to find a job, but we're exploring that, well, perhaps it's not in the most direct way that you'd think. For example, if you study history, perhaps you won't end up in the field of history. If you study literature, you might not end up in the field of literature. It's particularly the case with humanities. Um, it's not so much, of course, with the hard sciences like physics, mm -hmm. chemistry, Seems medicine. to have a sort of job field set out for it. Yeah. Well, there there are a lot of jokes, and I mean, it isn't as it really isn't a, a, a joke of the unemployability of some of the degrees <laughs> that are so popular at university. And uh, I, got, I have a flatmate who's studying English and philosophy, and he just kind of jokes all the time, like, yeah, I, I might just stay at the university because there's no way in hell I'm going to get a job. <laughs> and it's just, that's kind of a an, an odd way to look at it, uh, especially as you were saying that a more liberal, liberal arts-rounded education was, was the standard a number of years ago. Uh, but at the same time, we do tend to to romanticize the good old days of of uh, oh, of, sure. the, of, the, mean, of the past. Do you bring that up in the paper? We we've tried to stay away from the hard facts. So uh, just because we would probably well, in the sense of discussing the finances of university, discussing the numbers, because then it can get well, it would stop being so much about the purpose and just about how perhaps university hasn't developed in the way that we wanted it to. For instance, in 1960s. It was about one out of every 100 people in a graduating college cohort would enter university, whereas now it is almost 50%. So already that is a massive change and a good change at that. But, for example, back in the day, they didn't have to pay for university. Yeah. And now we do. Yeah, well, you used to get paid to go to university. Exactly. That was the case in, in the Netherlands until recently as well. My mom would tell me about that. She's, she's Dutch, and uh, she went to Leiden and then uh, Leiden University, University of Leiden? Yeah, University of Leiden, and then, uh, and then went to the U.S. on a field hockey scholarship. So she didn't end up having to pay for, for university, really. But in the, in the Netherlands, she was actually given, at the time it was a couple hundred guilders a month, just to, to study, which it seems amazing now, because we, we pay so much. It's just constant negatives in the, in the bank account, and from accommodation to, to just the expenses of daily life uh how far do you sort of ad address that kind of change and like without getting too far into the weeds here with the comparison to how things used to be is it really just on a more um well, on, we're discussing do it you know what of, i'm trying to say yeah. Yeah, yeah we're trying to talk well focus more on the purpose so we're mm -hmm. trying to sort of avoid this argument about finances because yeah, of course yeah, we'll fair. all get caught up in it 
we're discussing you could spend an entire paper talking about the differences and it probably wouldn't be that interesting (laughs) (laughs) yeah well in its way yeah it could be but we are focusing more on the fact that while many people like your friend that you said that if he's doing english and philosophy he might be unemployed well fact is he might not be in the field of english and philosophy but Mm -hmm. it's interesting how he's doing probably i'm assuming english and philosophy for the sake of doing english and philosophy which in its own way i think is quite a nice thing and it means that almost his focus in university might not entirely be obviously it is to a large extent professional but not entirely and i think that has a lot to say about university because we almost want the experience of university because it enriches us as a person as opposed to Well, especially studying things like English and philosophy that are going to be more (laughs) open-ended is is maybe the word the word I'd use. Where the 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 questions each of those some a lot of humanities fields raise are not definite, whereas sort of maths, chemistry, they're 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 a lot more definite. There's an answer, you know, and or you're 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 searching for an answer. Uh, in humanities, a lot of the time, where you might be in science, but it's a little bit more rote. You know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, is the humanities sort of rounded education? Should science students and should everybody, should everybody sort of get a little bit of that? Uh, so it's not just about getting a job for those science students, or are we just sort of humanities students like you guys should do our degree? And I'm sure if we had a bunch of chemistry students in here, they'd be like, you could learn so much uh, uh, and, and not use it for employment from a chemistry degree. Well, for instance, I know that in the U.S. it is the case that you have to take a lot of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that societies in the U.K., however, kind of make up the fact that we don't take every single other degree because it means that you can get involved in whatever you want irrespective of whether you study it or not yeah true in the u.s you have general education gen eds where you'll even if you're studying like mass you'll have an english course you'll have a history course which you can test out of by doing ap courses in high school but most students don't end up doing that so yeah like my my uh my brother uh is at the university of cincinnati right now and he did end up testing out of a couple of credits because he took AP European history. I did the same thing, but he ended up having to do a couple of humanities. He had to do an English course and a big struggle for him was, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the class, but it was some humanities class that talked about populations and the movement of people that just completely screwed up his GPA for the term. Like he was doing great in all of his art and design classes because he studies industrial design. Uh, but it it was just the uh, the humanities class that kind of screwed up his GPA, where uh, where that isn't the case here. It's all sort of the core of your education is what you what you chose to come here and study. Well, I, I mean to make that into a question, uh, which is better, the U.S. sort of gen ed where you have to do some English, you got to do some science, you got to do some math, uh, or the sort of focused study. Uh, here where you can do i mean the same kind of degree in three years rather than four i think it might be a bit of an unsatisfying answer but i think it is very much up to taste yeah some people just can't stand having to do a lot of subjects and would really just rather focus um well what about people that don't know what they want to do as well yeah like you don't have to for a lot of especially the more humanities you don't have to declare your major until like first second end of first and a second year at a lot of u.s universities so unless you're going in there for like i want to be a doctor my entire family's been doctors i'm going to be a doctor and i'm going to go to university to study to be a doctor 
for humanity students, a lot of the time, it's, I don't know what I want to do because I might not even have a job at the end of this degree. I, 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 there might be only a couple positions open to me. So, uh, And even PPE students, uh, yeah, a flatmate of mine has no idea what she wants to do. And so is this the right study for, for, for her, would you think? Or going back to sort of the purpose of university, would it just be... Oh, I completely forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 just, we'll end up cutting that out, but you, you, you go on with whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. it oh, God. Oh, no sleep. That's the issue. Oh. Yeah, honestly, tell me about it. But to sort of pick up where you left off, students that don't really know what they're going to do, I think university is quite helpful for that because in a way, of course, it's training for life itself, perhaps not just for a professional job but for having to make choices and I guess developing yourself as cheesy as that sounds in a way what we want to do with this paper is sort of tackle that existential question of why am I in university is it all just completely worthless absolutely because I'm not going to get a job because I'm doing straight philosophy not that straight <laughs> philosophy students aren't going to get a job of course I mean are they though <laughs> we can call them out Straight philosophy students that aren't doing PPE, don't have to deal with economics. I ended up failing maths one. <laughs> I gotta go retake that. Oh my. Horrible, horrible. I'm a little bit jealous of the philosophy students. Oh, John Bone. He was a great lecturer, but anybody, yeah. anybody who studies maths at the level that he did, and he does. At like, he went to Oxford for math. There's just some basic concepts that I don't understand that he just probably wouldn't be able to explain to me because it's just like that's just how it is, you know. <laughs> it's like one plus one is two, and and I just wasn't at that level because I didn't do A level math, and I didn't really put in put in enough work, you know. Okay, but we can move on from there to talk about how students can get involved in the the think tank in general, and I'll direct this at you, Pablo. There, the president. Well. The way that we've been running research groups so far is essentially that they're meant, of course, they've dragged on, but they're meant to last a term. Students join these research groups at the beginning of a term and throughout the term they work on it with their team. Um, obviously, if you haven't had the chance to sign up at the beginning of term, then you'd have to wait until the next, though we've left it open for research group leaders to accept new members if they deem it okay. So we've, in that way, we've given them a lot of liberty. So you could contact us and we could put you in contact with the research group leaders to see if they might want you onto their team. <coughs> How do they contact you? Will there be a link in the description of this podcast? There will be a link as well as our email and social media so you can reach out to us. We do tend to be quite prompt in our responses. so Great. So you can look for that you. in the description if you do want to get involved, if any of this has sounded interesting. I mean, I think that I'm definitely going to get involved, if not in the summer term uh, next year. Uh, but uh, um, what are the what are the long term goals of this think tank? And Lars and May, I'd like to bring you guys in on this. What do you guys see as the the long term goal of this podcast? Or, oh, podcast! Oh my god, think tank uh, <laughs> beyond your time at university. When you hand this off inevitably to, to 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 the students who will who will replace you as the exact committee of the think tank, what do you want to hand them? And what do you what sort of values would you like? to instill on them so that the, the, the think tank has longevity? Well, I think we've, all, we've already mentioned quite a lot the um, kind of gaining experience for students and also just um, broadening knowledge, really, just spreading info. But 
Um, on top of that, we're quite a, it is an academically skewed um, society and quite a lot of, we, although we have socials and we have, um, you know, fun times together, there's also uh, quite academic events. So we had, for example, um, a Catalonian, uh, Cat, the John, Professor, Professor John Elliott, um, who wrote a book about Scots and Catalans. Um, he came and we hosted a talk for him to almost a TED talk to um, talk about that that's the, that subject that he wrote a book about. So um, we are one of the most like academically um, we want we're, we're we're a society that has like um, quite academic um, prospects. So that's that's why. So you 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 want to keep it to the more academic side. You don't want it to just be like um, like what a lot of club of pep. Not to not to call out the club of pep too much, but we we should do more academic academic based uh, based socials and not just go out drinking you know and uh so what would be an, an example of what you guys do sort of beyond beyond writing these papers academically as as a group well isaac ward started hosting something he called socrates cafe and that is sort of our well apparently that's when you met us you ran into us in viva while we were doing the socrates cafe i mean to be fair you were drinking <laughs> Gotcha. It's drinking gotcha. and discussing. Gotcha there. Okay, so you want to keep it, keep it ac academic, but beyond that, Lars, could you could you tell everybody what the what the what the goals are like five years down the line? What would you like to see this this think tank doing? I think at the heart of this, we have a wish to impact society and provide <sighs> solutions um, towards some of the problems that we might be facing, mm -hmm. and I think. For us, the think tank is a vessel to provide this for students to get together, share ideas, get experience and start addressing some of the concerns that we might have and start thinking seriously about how can we um, find solutions so that we don't have to live this uh, with these problems for the rest of our lives. In a way, we are we're pushing for students to work together to come to well to find solutions to problems in the world in a non-partisan organization so oftentimes we're addressing political issues for example may's case with the humanitarian well, controversial crisis in China. issues yeah, i mean exactly. really, what are you here for if not for looking into controversial issues yes but we want to do so in an unpartisan mm -hmm. way we want people from differing ideologies to get together and try to find a solution that works for both uh, of course, it might not always be possible, but we want the discussion to be there. Yeah, and, and you wouldn't want to be biased. Do you guys bring your politics into your papers at all? Um, we, of course, to an extent, it's inevitable, yeah. but we try to be as impartial as possible. Okay, that <laughs> I mean, that's 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 quite difficult to do, and I try and do the same thing on the podcast for 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 two reasons. One, I I want to be like an impartial host, but then if and if at some point I want to go into politics or I want or just in the future, uh, I, I wouldn't want people looking back and being like, oh, he had this view then, now he has this view, or yeah. this is controversial now, and just that kind of whole whole uh ties into like the the current cancel culture kind of thing where people will find a a bad tweet or some bad opinion and try and try and get you out of whatever whatever job you have in the future so i can definitely relate to to what you're talking about there but i guess for the very long-term future what we'd like to achieve really is just a society that has sufficient experience to 
give students an opportunity to enter the very daunting world of research. I mean, quite frankly, having started up the think tank, the three of us, I think I can confidently say that neither of us knew what the hell we're getting into. It, at the very beginning, we were very much out of our depth to an extent, obviously, we very much still are. But it, it does have to, well, what we'd like the society to be is an opportunity for students to exactly get involved, experience research in a quote-unquote amateur student way, and therefore be able to perhaps break into the world of research if that is something that they're interested in in the future. Very interesting. And that seems like an amazing goal. And I think we can, uh, we can, we can wrap it up there. So if you would like to get involved, like Pablo said earlier, all of our socials, all of your socials will be in the description of this podcast. So, I mean, feel free to reach out to these guys if you want to, if you want to get involved. I'd like to thank you guys, Lars, May, Pablo, for coming on. This has been the, uh, the Pep Talk podcast, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank, thank you, Mark. Thank you.